Hello, and welcome to Brief Encounters. I'm Tori Lauterbach, a partner in the energy and climate practice of Foley HOAG. And today I have with me Aaron Garnis-Holmes, who is a climate program analyst with the Department of Energy and Environment of the DC government. Aaron, welcome. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. So like you said, I am a climate program analyst with DOEE, the Department of Energy and Environment. I work in our Urban Sustainability Administration, and I am focused pretty explicitly on climate change adaptation or preparing for the impacts of climate change. So I have some colleagues who work on climate from other angles, like uh, you know mitigating our greenhouse gas emissions in the district or you know helping DC go green or go electric. I'm really focused on the fact that climate change is already starting to happen, and it's going to happen even more severely in the future, and how do we get ready for that? That sounds like an important job. So as you have a background actually in landscape architecture and urban planning, can you tell us how these interests have informed and led to your work on climate adaptation planning for the District of Columbia? Sure. Yeah. I came into the climate adaptation universe kind of sideways from those fields, but I think that resilience and sustainability, sort of two big buzzwords, but also I think those are like core to the fields of landscape, architecture, and urban planning. You know, people who are working in those fields want to create cities and spaces that we live in that, you know, are sustainable and healthy and help us thrive. And, you know, resilience is about having human beings thrive in the face of challenges, whether that's a climate change shock or economic shocks or all sorts of things that might go wrong. A resilient community is one that can bounce back and move forward and thrive. And I think that that's the goal of being, you know, an urban planner is to create infrastructure for communities to be able to do that. So I, I was a landscape architect working on waterfronts throughout the country, looking at, you know, smaller cities and, and downtowns that faced rivers that had sort of turned their back on the river from the industrial era, but we're suddenly rediscovering how great of open spaces they were, but also had to grapple with the fact that rivers can sometimes overflow their bounds and flood. And so it's both an asset and a resource, but also a potential hazard. And how do you kind of tackle both of those at once? So I, I worked on river issues here in DC on our lovely Anacostia River and found myself talking more and more about climate change and resilience, because I think the Anacostia River corridor is one of the prime marinas in which we're going to be grappling with the many issues that relate to climate. Yeah, and you, you know, you mentioned community and our communities, and we're here actually on behalf of the DC Affairs community of the DC Bar, and we're really engaged in how our local government is interacting with its citizens and, and of course, us as members of the DC Bar, how we can, we can be engaged in that same arena. To that end, can you tell us a little bit about what the District of Columbia Department of Energy Environment's Urban Sustainability Administration does? Sure. So DOEE, Department of Energy and Environment, is kind of a big agency. We cover a lot of different areas. The Urban Sustainability Administration is one of the smaller groups within that agency. And we operate sort of like a think tank and a planning arm of the agency. So we develop policy and program sort of solutions that are addressing emerging problems. And we're focused sort of overarching on sustainability, but that includes a lot of different things underneath it, like green building technology, climate change where I'm working, racial equity and environmental justice, sustainable materials management, urban agriculture, all sorts of things. 
so we have teams working on these sort of emerging areas that aren't yet, you know, a full-blown department anywhere in D.C. government. But we also oversee these district-wide sustainability plans. So Sustainable D.C. is our sort of big flagship plan that's, you know, the vision and the, and the steps that D.C. will take to become a sustainable, healthy, green place where everyone can thrive. And then these other sort of topic area plans like Climate Ready D.C. and Keep Cool D.C. that I focus on. So speaking of Climate Ready D.C., can you tell us more about what that is? Is that an office? Is that a written plan? What is Climate Ready D.C.? Sure. Climate Ready D.C. is both a, an actual document uh, released in 2016 that is a, a climate adaptation plan. But of course, Climate Ready D.C. is also a vision and an initiative. We want to be climate ready. The document itself is a plan for how the district can prepare for the impacts of climate change. And we know that climate change is something that's going to bring more extreme heat. It's going to bring hotter average temperatures and more intense heat waves. We're also going to see more intense and frequent precipitation, which could lead to flooding and more increased and, and severe flooding. We might see more extreme storms. So there are all these hazards associated with climate change that the plan lays out some steps we can take to be prepared for those. Can you tell us a bit about what the goals are of that plan? Maybe just some of the highlights. Sure. I'd say that the overarching goal is to prepare the district for the hazards that we know are already happening and are going to happen. And it's split into different kind of categories. There are four chapters to this plan. One is focused on infrastructure, like transportation, you know, roadways and utilities. One is focused on buildings, you know, our homes and our offices and, and schools and things like that. One is focused kind of internally on DC governance and how we're going to implement the plan. And the last one's focused on neighborhoods and communities. And the goal of each of those is basically the same thing. We want to make sure that whatever it is that chapter covers, if it's infrastructure or buildings or how we do planning, we want to make sure that all of those decisions that are being made and things that are being built are taking climate into account. So if we know that the temperature is going to be increasing or precipitation is going to be increasing, we want to make sure that decisions that we're making on things that are going to last for decades are looking at that, that future scenario and making sure the decisions we make today are you know, preparing us for the future scenario. Some of that is just designing, you know, a building to be able to withstand higher temperatures. But some of it is more about what kind of programs we're funding, what kind of planning and risk analysis we need to do and things like that. I'd love to get into an example of one of the subject areas of the plan. But before we do that, can you tell us a little bit more about what is considered a climate impact? I mean, we hear about climate change, but from the perspective of the city of D.C., what's a climate impact? We talk about sort of two major impacts that we really focus on. One is heat, and the other one is precipitation and the flooding that could be associated with it. There are other things that are happening with climate change. I mean, climate change is a really complex global system that's having all sorts of ripple effects in our own climate system. So we're seeing things that we didn't plan for in the plan, like, you know, the wildfire smoke that we had this summer that was due to forest fires in Canada that are, you know, happening more frequently, there's, there's fires going on right now in Virginia that's partially due to the drier weather or the hotter temperatures that we've had that are sort of unseasonable or, or not normal. We'll see more and more of those things. But the main impacts we are preparing for are higher temperatures and more water. 
So for the temperatures, we're going to see our average temps every year kind of go up, but we'll also see more heat waves, which are, you know, two or more days with high temperatures over 95 degree heat index. The number of those each year will likely increase. And we'll see, unfortunately, warmer nights, which is actually a pretty significant statistic because even if you have a really hot day, the human body can often recover from a hot day by cooling off at night when we sleep. But if our night times are warm, bodies never get a chance to cool off and it can actually create a really dangerous public health situation when you have hot days and hot nights combined. For precipitation, we, it's harder to predict exactly the size of a storm and when it's going to happen where. But in general, we're going to see more intense storms and higher potential amounts of precipitation in those storms, which will have all sorts of impacts. One of the things we're most focused on is the likelihood of flooding from all the rain. There's also sea level rise. The district is located on two tidal rivers. So the Potomac and the Anacostia are connected to the bay, which is connected to the ocean. So they, they go up and down with the tide, and they are subject to rising with sea level rise. But most of the district is elevated from the rivers. And so while we might see some like coastal sort of storm surge associated flooding, the flooding from the precipitation is probably going to be much more severe than we'll see from sort of the river's edges. So taking these concerns about climate impacts and talking about it with the subject matter example, I understand that one of the goals of Climate Ready DC is a goal to have buildings built to withstand these types of climate impacts by 2032. Can you tell us a little bit more about that goal for buildings and what that means for what people who are building buildings in DC will have to do to make sure that they meet those goals and also the city's role in making sure that happens. Right. Yeah. In a couple of our plans, one of them is sustainable DC. Another one is resilient DC, which is a separate plan that's implemented by Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. Echo the goal in Climate Ready that by 2032, all new buildings will be designed to withstand the impacts of climate change. That's a few years off. And I think that the way that that will ultimately be implemented is that there will be some sort of design standard for what that means. What does it mean for a building to be able to withstand climate change? A lot of the things that that might mean, like being able to withstand higher temperatures by being a really you know well-insulated, efficient building, are already being required in the district through other programs like our building energy performance standards, or they're just best practice in new buildings anyway. But some of the elements might become new requirements. And we've sort of taken a step to explore what those requirements might be someday, or, or really just what are the strategies that building designers can use to prepare for climate. And we've published a set of resilient design guidelines. So you can find these online already. It's a set of basically suggestions or best practices, along with a calculator that you can use to sort of check what you think the lifespan of your project is going to be, look at the climate projections for that time frame, and then do a sort of a cross analysis of which of those hazards based on your location you really need to focus on. And then it suggests some of the ways that you can adapt to them. A lot of the strategies are things like raising your mechanical equipment off of the ground or getting it out of basement. So if there's flooding, it's elevated and doesn't get impacted. There's a lot about building, you know, well-insulated buildings that all have access to air conditioning to help with extreme heat in the future. And there's some, you know, sort of interesting ones like 
knowing that with higher temperatures, we might see different kinds of insect populations migrate to the district, including termite species from the south that we are farther south that we haven't normally seen in the district that might be more aggressive. And we might need to do, you know, a different type of flashing along the base of buildings to adapt to that. Aaron, you've given me a new nightmare to have at night that I might have new bugs. Thank you. You're welcome. But, you know, that's part of being ready for the climate, right? So when we talk about standards for buildings, are those standards for residential buildings, houses, multifamily, office buildings? What are we, are we talking about all of them? Well, to be clear, these aren't standards yet. This is a list of, mm. of guidelines, and we don't even have a, a roadmap yet of how these would become you know, required standards. But it is a target that the mayor has set that we'll get there by 2032. And I think that with the intent of that target, it would impact all buildings. You know, if we have some sort of big climate event and our homes are projected, but all the offices fall over, it doesn't do us much good. So I think that we need to really take a comprehensive approach to all sorts of buildings. And, you know, it's not just buildings we need to be thinking about. It's our infrastructure. We need to make sure that our roadways can, you know, withstand potential flooding. We need to make sure that our drainage, you know, our storm drains and, and drainage infrastructure, if it can't handle the amount of water that is projected to be coming down, what can we be doing before the drains to slow and stop that water? Things like green infrastructure and sort of floodable parks and things that we've seen in other cities and in other countries that reduce the amount of water that ever hits the storm system so it never gets overloaded. we got to make sure that our bridges, like expansion joints, can withstand higher temperatures in the future, things like that. So it's sort of a, an everything, everyone and everyone will be touched by climate. You either are already or you will be in the future. It's something weather and climate impact everyone. And similarly, it impacts all of the built environment. So we need to kind of take a comprehensive look and make sure that we're prepared. Wow, this is a lot to think about. One of the things, though, that you brought up that is, I think, close to a lawyer's heart, and I know, Aaron, you are not a lawyer, but uh, I am, and a lot of our listeners are. You talked about how we have some guidelines from Climate Ready DC, but we don't have standards. So where are we in the process of the implementation of Climate Ready DC? And will there be more defined standards coming forward as we implement this plan? Possibly. Right now is an opportunity to have that kind of discussion. So we are updating Climate Ready DC just starting now this fiscal year. So that started in October. We're recording this in November 2023. And so we've just launched this update process. So we're reviewing all of the 77 original actions in Climate Ready DC, and we're figuring out, you know, how can we adapt the plan to better match both current science, you know, it's been several years since the original one came out, but also what kind of practices do we know work well within the city government we have now? What are other cities doing of best practice for preparation for climate? We want to sort of refresh the whole document and make sure that we're, you know, on track to meet the goal of being climate ready. But the conversations that we're planning to have with community members, with our you know, sister agencies all around government, are all going to be about how do we get there and, and what are the strategies and how do we tweak this roadmap. And whether that's you know, setting a roadmap for new standards or focusing on other strategies is up to what happens in these conversations over the next 12 months or so. This is a perfect opportunity to ask, how does your office interact with other parts of the D.C. government? I'm hearing some emergency management. I'm hearing some business code. 
I'm hearing a lot of different things. How how do you now work within the different agencies and how do you think that'll go into the future? We work really closely with a lot of different agencies and a lot of other teams within DOEE also. We work very closely with HZEMA, that's H-S-E-M-A, Homeland Security and Emergency Management Agency. It's like FEMA, but for the district. And since we're talking about the hazards of climate change and they're, they're focused on hazard mitigation, we work really closely with them. And our chief resilience officer, Melissa Diaz, who is charged with coordinating implementation of Resilient DC, which includes a section on climate change. They're also our you know, administrators of FEMA money. And so we sort of work with them on funding for climate preparation also. But we work with lots of other agencies. We not only do sort of these ad hoc project-based things around different topics, but we're going to be having these more formalized interagency workshops around that Climate Ready DC update that I mentioned. We also have formed an interagency you know, advisory group from some of the agencies that play more of a role in climate adaptation. So like Department of Transportation, Emergency Management, the Office of Planning, and many others to meet on a regular basis and sort of advise DOEE on how to implement this plan. So we have a lot of structures in place internally, but we also work a lot with other governments. You know, we work regionally. We collaborate a little bit with Prince George's County and sometimes with Virginia jurisdictions, usually through the Metropolitan Washington Council of Governments, who is our, our regional planning body. We're looking right now at a project with Prince George's County where we want to address some of the river, the stream watersheds that cross the border. So what starts upstream comes downstream. So we want to figure out how we can be taking sort of a watershed-wide approach to water management and flood reduction. And then, of course, we work with federal agencies, mostly for you know, meeting the targets for different programs, but also seeking federal funding for many of our projects as well. And big partners on climate have been FEMA, of course, because they are trying to reduce the amount of catastrophes that happen but also NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is, is really invested in climate change and helping educate communities and build kind of community-level preparedness for climate. So we work with them on a lot of community-based projects. Oh, interesting. And when we're talking about community, again, I know you had mentioned working with other parts of government, but also working with communities themselves, taking community input. Can you tell us a little bit about where your office is getting that community input, and what kinds of interactions with the citizenry are happening. Sure. So before I say what we've done, I'll say, don't worry, there's lots of opportunities in the future to get involved if you oh, feel great. less from what I'm about to tell you. But we've been really focused on some of the communities that are actually called out in the Climate Ready DC plan as more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So one of those are the neighborhoods along the Watts Branch Stream Corridor in Ward 7. It's a tributary to the Anacostia that because it's a water body, it, you know, it has a flood zone around it. And unfortunately, it's got the highest concentration of residential units in a floodplain in the district in those neighborhoods. And so oh, wow. if we know that more precipitation is going to bring more flooding, we've been really trying to do a lot of sort of focused engagement with people who live in that corridor to really advertise flood insurance and We've launched a, a program called Flood Smart Homes, which is a program where we can send a, a flood auditor out to a house to inspect the structure and make sure, see what, see what the potential flooding hazards might be, come up with a list of strategies that can be done to address that. And then we unfortunately don't have the funding this year, but hopefully next year we'll actually have funding to 
implement those things for free for the homeowner to help make sure that their house is protected from flooding. And we've also been working with a community center, the FH Fonterey Community Enrichment Center on Nanny Helen Burroughs, to help sort of equip and train up that center to become the district's first pilot resilience hub. And, you know, I, I guess I said train up, but really they've been training us on what that means because the whole model for resilience hubs is to have it be a community-led effort. And there's a whole network of people who have been organizing around this model of having a sort of an, an emergency center that people can turn to when things go wrong. But really it's like a community center during the most of the times that nothing's gone wrong and just helping people build skills to be prepared for what might go wrong and to build you know, community connections so that they're turning to each other in a case of emergency and to build like green job workforce pipelines so that people can actually you know, start making a living in this world of kind of climate and preparedness and things like that. So those are just some examples. We also are working in a few other neighborhoods. We're focused on Ivy City a little bit right now. There's planning around that neighborhood, and we know it's a, an extreme urban heat island in Ivy City, so we want to figure out what we can do about that. And we go to all sorts of community events. I was out in the Anacostia Park this summer talking to people about you know everything I just told you about how to get your home protected and how to plant a tree to cool down your street and things like that. Great. So talking about sort of like individual impacts, one of the things I think about as, because I'm actually, I'm an energy, electricity, and utilities lawyer by trade. I think about the role of energy affordability in adapting to climate change when we're talking about climate control, when we're talking about insulating our homes. Can you tell us a little bit about how your office thinks about the affordability piece, especially when it comes to energy affordability, when we're talking about resilience and adaptation to climate change? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that we look at with extreme heat is access to air conditioning and the importance of air conditioning as a role it plays in keeping people safe during extreme heat. So while a lot of people might look at air conditioning as sort of a, a luxury or a, a thing that provides comfort, we see it really as like a public health measure to save lives. Extreme heat is a leading cause of climate-related death in the world and in the country. And most of the people who die during like a heat wave die alone in their apartments that don't have air conditioning. So while our sort of energy goals would theoretically want us to be spending less on energy and, you know, maybe not using the air conditioner if you don't have to, we're really saying we should be increasing access to air conditioning to all residents of the district, particularly those who might be more vulnerable. And sometimes a lot of the times those are people with lower incomes. So that means that if we are asking people with lower incomes to run the air conditioner more often, you know, you really have to make sure that that's something that's affordable. You know, it can't be something that's adding to the list of expenses that that makes one's life even more challenging. So we have a whole utility affordability administration within DOEE that helps sign people up for the federal program of heating and energy assistance that you can get if you are income qualifying and we are constantly reminding people that that's not just utility assistance that you can get for heating, but you can use that for cooling and air conditioning in the summer as well. And then as we're talking about sort of how to stay safe during extreme heat and crazy temperatures, other parts of DOE are working really hard on making buildings more energy efficient and more insulated and having you know, renewable power. And luckily, those two things are really achieving the same goal, because if you have a building that is really well insulated on a super hot day, 
it's going to take longer for that building to heat up and become dangerous. And it, it may never hit the dangerous territories if you have an air conditioning system running. If the power goes out and you lose your air conditioning, if it's a really well-insulated building, it stays cooler longer, hopefully then, you know, long enough time for the power to come back on again. So we want to make sure also that those efficiency, you know, improvements to buildings are also affordable and accessible. So it's, it's something that every district resident can benefit from. And we work with different partners to, you know, provide different grants and incentives and, and refunds and rebates for various things. And as the heat increases, I think we're going to be trying to expand the amount of utility assistance we give to people to make sure that air conditioning is really accessible. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. It, it sounds like it's a really interdisciplinary endeavor. It's both, are we building efficient buildings? Are we providing economical access to the resources that we need, like energy affordability? It sure sounds like a complex set of challenges that your office is facing. I mean, you know, there's two great crises of our time, right? There's climate change that's going to affect everyone, and there's growing social inequality. And the two of those things are really combined in this case, because if you have less means, you are sort of less able to be prepared for potential things that could go wrong. But because these are things that kind of affect everybody, it's going to take everybody to work on them together. And so our agency is really collaborative. I work really closely with our energy department, our air quality department, our natural resources administration, and with a lot of other agencies outside of DOE. And I think that when I'm talking to people about this, I think it's something that almost everyone is interested in learning about and preparing for and getting resources for themselves to, to build their own preparedness. It's sort of a universal campaign that we're all on. Yeah. And speaking of which, I, I think we're running out of time, but I think one last question for you. You talk about these two interests, you know, these two challenges, reacting to climate change and reacting to inequality. If people are interested in getting involved in these issues, I think they're probably close to a lot of people's hearts on this podcast. What are some ways that our community members, members of the DC affairs community within the DC bar might be able to get involved in your work? Absolutely. Well, I would say there's sort of two ways to get involved. One would be to, you know, participate in some of the community meetings and workshops that we're going to be having. I don't have all the details to tell you on the podcast right now, but if you search for Climate Ready DC, you'll end up on our page and you can get the latest information there. We're going to be at, you know, community meetings like ANC meetings and civic association meetings. We'll be hosting our own workshops over the next several months or years around this topic. But there's also things that you can do, you know, as an individual or as a family to make sure that, that you're prepared for climate change. And I think from an emergency planning perspective, I highly recommend you go to ready.dc.gov, which is HZEMA's website for preparing for different emergencies or hazards, making sure you have a kit in your home and you have a plan for when things could go wrong if we're talking about extended heat waves or super big storms. But I think another thing that you could do if you own property, you could plant a tree because trees are one of the best technology we have to prepare for climate change. A young adult tree can emit as much cooling effect as like 10 window box air conditioners just through evapotranspiration and casting shade. So they really cool down the temperatures and they help reduce the urban heat island. They also absorb a ton of water. So if it's you know, raining and we have more trees, they suck up more water, which prevents it from backing up in storm drains and flooding. And they provide, of course, all sorts of, you know, habitat for little creatures. And I think they're really beautiful. So the more of those, the better. Wow, I've got to go plant a tree in my backyard. 
Erin, we will make sure to put ready.dc.gov in the episode notes of this podcast. I would like to thank the DC Affairs community of the DC Bar for inviting you and me on to have this conversation today. And thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a delight.